Welcome. So glad you could join us here this weekend for our online liturgy. My name is John. I'm the junior high youth pastor here. And I get the privilege this weekend to share a very relevant passage of Scripture, which will ultimately lead us to the high point of our gathering, which is taking communion together. United together under Christ, all in right standing before God, tethered together by the Spirit, as we partake and remember. And this weekend marks the first weekend of Lent, where every weekend we'll be taking communion together as we look forward to the very fundamental nature of the Christian life, which is Christ's death and resurrection. But let's, let's begin by aligning our hearts with God's as we pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today wanting to receive more of you in our lives. We look to you for guidance and direction. And may you speak to our hearts in this moment. May we put aside what is holding us back and speak to us by your Spirit. Lead us today, Father. In your name we pray. Amen. Have you ever found yourself in a conversation with somebody? Maybe it was at a, out for coffee, at a Bible study, or maybe in the comfort of your own home on Zoom. Everything seems to be going great. You're feeling edified, you feel connected, your heart is full. And then someone just says something that snags your attention. And they keep talking and carrying on their point. But you're stuck 30 seconds ago in the past, trying to process what they just said and how you're going to respond. And if it's on a matter of faith, where they just aren't seeing things the way that you do, don't you feel it in your heart that it is your moral and divinely appointed duty to just, in love, entirely correct their every belief that they had just mentioned with your wise and persuasive words? You ever been there? If not, let me tell you, that has certainly been and might still be me. <laughs> the person says something of, about faith that just doesn't seem right to how you see things. You know your heart, there's another way, another theology, a deeper understanding that they just need to see. And so you lay it all out before them. You're quoting scripture, sermons, you're quoting pastors and writers, and you've built up such good evidence against their point that you feel like, man, God must be on my side because this makes more sense. Are you starting to remember a time like this? And what happens? The other person just sits back and receives it. Likely not. More than likely, the excitement begins to fade off their face. They sit back. They're, they just, they're just waiting for you to finish. And then when you finally do finish, they might just say, oh, interesting. Or maybe that's when the argument ensues. <laughs> you know, they've, they've researched that opinion, just their own opinion, just as much as you've researched yours. They're quoting sermons and scripture and writers and pastors too. <laughs> and, it's, and then it's this back and forth. And normally when this happens, either it ends and you move on, or it ends and you don't talk about it anymore, or it and your relationship with them ends. Does that sound familiar? I can say that I've walked long enough as a Christian to have witnessed and been a part of conversations like this more times than I can count. Christians love to argue. We call it 
healthy Christian debate. Because Christians don't argue when it's in love. But if we're being honest and calling it like it is, it's an argument usually founded on pride and not loving the other person. If this isn't you, and it's never been you, that's fine, I get it. Just make sure to quote me correctly when you bring it up in your non-argument in the future with other believers. And, And for everybody else who can relate to a time like this, you're in good company. Because there's a reason situations like this and others like it are brought up in Scripture, specifically in Romans chapter 14. Last week, Clyde began part one of Romans 14. That sets us up for, for, for what we're going to hear and outline today. That when other believers disagree, and how do we handle that? And, the highlight, and it highlights that Paul is calling us not simply to tolerate or narrow-mindedly accept that others have another position, but to welcome in and accept another's position, to really broaden our circle of those we interact with and adjust our lives so that we may have a relationship with them. Which is so culturally different than what we live by. We're in our minds, we're so convinced there's another way. On matters of faith, or on major matters, this is true, but, on, but like Clyde mentioned last week, these matters are often matters of, or not major at all, but are simply cultural influences. Yet if we consider matters of cultural differences or convictions to be major issues, then, isn't it, then it isn't a surprise that we want to be right and we want others to uh, believe it too. But considering this isn't the case, and it's very likely that we're arguing on a point of, of basis of cultural differences and convictions, then what impact are we really having which leads us to this week in Romans 14, 13 to 23, where Paul describes what is now the damaging effects of, of living opposed to this type of acceptance of others. And in these next 15 minutes, we'll begin to see what actually happens as a result of our healthy Christian debates. And so in your Bible, you can turn to Romans chapter 14. We'll be in the later half of Romans 14, starting in verses 13. And, and as we read, remember... This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, therefore, so so referring to what Clyde talked about last week, because of this, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. And so so we've established that's God's rule. But rather, so here is what we're supposed to do in response. Decide never, big absolute word there, never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of another believer. Let's start off by saying that we can probably agree. Let's not do that. To give us an image, uh, this is what Paul is talking about when he's saying a stumbling block. It's not like a hiking trail where you have to be aware of rocks and fallen debris, but a paved path you expect to be flat. And so you're confident that you can walk Uh, just fine. And then boom, you stumble on what was not supposed to cause you to stumble. I know this is true. (laughs) My sister-in-law was once walking along at the stampede on what she thought was a flat path. 
She didn't consider what was right in front of her, so she decided she was safe. In one moment, she's upright and talking, and the next, boom, she's gone, flat on her face, tumbled on what she thought to be a safe and flat path. She says there was a stumbling block there, a brief dip in the ground that, that caused her to, to, to stumble. None of us can testify of, the, of that dip being there, but the testimony remains true. A stumbling block comes from the places you least expect them. In Paul's words, Christians causing other Christians to stumble. And so what it is that Paul is talking is about is don't be that unexpected, out-of-place block that your unassuming fellow believer will fall over. Paul says, let's decide to never do that. And so what Paul must be saying is, is that what he mentions in verse 1 to 9, which we see restated again in verses 13 to 23, must be a stumbling block to other believers. And let's never do that. But to what degree are we causing others to stumble? Are we talking about minor inconveniences, little awkward discords, uh, or just a little trip up? Or is Paul using this stumbling block as an illustration about stumbling into something far greater? I think Paul's message here isn't a small heads up to the Romans. Paul is actually pleading with the Romans and other believers by saying in verse 17 that, that these areas where you disagree, like, like what you eat and what you don't eat, is not even remotely a matter of importance to the kingdom of God. Paul even points out what is important. It's righteousness, peace, and joy from the Holy Spirit. Or in other words, where does the Holy Spirit come from? Well, the Spirit resides in us when we follow Christ. So Paul is pleading with the Romans that the important matters of the kingdom of God is Christ and a life lived honoring that decision to follow Christ by the power of the Spirit. That's it. But we've all been in those arguments where we're just so convinced, if only they saw it the way that I do, they could finally live fully. And we disagree with Paul. <laughs> We're convinced that there's always a rule to the exception. And in this moment, this is one of those. But Paul says there is no exception. Your judgment and your discord will cause your fellow believer to stumble. But, but Paul, they need to see this. And Paul would agree. They do need to see this. He says in verse 14, Just like you, all strong believers, I know there is no unclean food. I'm convinced in Jesus. Except Paul would say, it, it, this isn't your responsibility. Because not only does Paul suggest in verse 17 that the Spirit proceeding from Christ is important, but that there is an active role of the Spirit in the lives of, of all believers to live a life of righteousness, peace, and joy. And so Paul alludes here, these are not matters of kingdom importance. And these are not for you to persuade others to. And you can trust in the Spirit to guide them. And with that reassurance, we can identify the things that are not kingdom focused and not cause others to stumble over them. Because when we do cause others to stumble, and Paul identifies to what degree in verse 15. He says, by what you eat, by what you argue over, are, are not matters of importance. So do not destroy 
the one from whom Christ died for those things. Do not cause others to stumble into destruction over non-essential issues you deem to be matters of importance. And so Paul is painting a very clear picture here. Our cultural disagreements with others, other believers on matters that we deem important, but don't matter to the kingdom of God, leads to destruction. And destruction in what sense? Well, very clearly, the Greek word for destroy here is apolimi. No, that's wrong. Apolumi. Apolumi. Which means destruction. And in the same sense as as to die or destroy fully. And And for Paul to say destroy the one from whom Christ died is quite literally to cause them to stumble back into sin. Away from Christ and into eternal destruction. That's a huge charge. Our cultural disagreements which we will not surrender even for another believer, has enough influence to completely destroy them. Not saying that yours or my disagreements have, but these matters of non-importance that we clinch onto as important and disagree with others on can be used, used as a tool against Christ's work. How is that even possible? If we look back to last week, we recognize Paul is pleading with the stronger believers not to be a stumbling block to the weaker believer. These are people who have not fully experienced or even fully grasped the full understanding of the gospel. And our stumbling block has enough strength to trip them into destruction. And it does so in a couple ways. The very first is that it's contrary to the gospel itself. If we are so stuck on living a certain way or believing a certain cultural difference that we aren't willing to give it up, even just for a moment, or we're not willing to welcome in a believer based on their own positions, Paul says in verse 15, we are no longer walking in love. And love is the gospel of Christ and his commandment to the believers. Ephesians 5 verses 1 to 2 even says, for us to be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love like Christ did. He loved us and gave himself up for us. The gospel is a demonstration of love to surrender ourselves. And if we're not willing to surrender our own trivial positions and ways of life for another believer, we are not being imitators of Christ and we are not demonstrating Super, or, uh, sacrificial love. If you've ever been friends with a, non, or a non-believer who was once a believer, you know this claim that Paul is making is true. Generally, they leave based on matters which others have pushed onto them that Paul says are not matters of the kingdom of God. They're normally pushed away by cultural practices held by their family, friends, church, or denomination. A friend of mine grew up Catholic, and then years down the road, when we became friends, we would have conversations about faith. And when we talk about his journey out of faith, the main thing that led him out was doctrinal issues and convictions he was convinced were simply how all other Christians believed. And if this is true, and this is who Christ is, he doesn't want any part of it. This is not a loving God. Our positions and practices on matters which do not matter in the kingdom of God and the ones we push as essential have the very influence to cause other believers to stumble out of faith. And the second way our convictions lead us to stumble 
is that it leads them away from God and towards sin. In verse 5 to 7, we see Paul tells us that no matter the convictions that we have, as long as we're convinced in Christ Jesus, just as Paul was, that our convictions are true. And we do so as a form of worship to God. And then Paul says in verse 22 that we are blessed. (laughs) What we do is essentially good. Not that it's good in and of itself, but it's because we are bringing glory to God. And then for those who partake in something or, or change their belief in something, but are not convinced, they're actually still convinced in Jesus that their other position is correct and okay. They are no longer living by, by their faith in God or living their God-honoring position anymore and are sinning. Well, we think, well, how is this my fault? I'm convinced my position is good. But like Paul is saying, that it's not by, it's not us who will change others' convictions. Only God. And if, they're, and if they are living a God-honoring life, it's good. So by leading them to, uh, from faith to doubt is sin. And Jesus makes it clear in Luke chapter 17, 1 to 2. Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe, but death to the one whom they come. It would be better for him if he had a millstone hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to stumble or to fall into sin. This verse is generally used uh, for little children. But how about those little children in the faith? The weak in the faith? Woe to them. Condemned is the one who causes them to stumble. Us causing another to leave their conviction out of faith can cause them to sin. And this isn't a small charge, as we read what Jesus said. And for all of us here, knowing that we've likely been a part of such discords makes us consider what sort of negative influence have we had? Have we acted contrary to the gospel to others? Have we caused others to sin? But whether our disagreements have a negative impact is not what Paul is pleading for. He says, let's not pass judgment anymore. Let's not be stumbling blocks anymore. And so if we've come to this point where we can all agree, let's not be a stumbling block, then let's set ourselves up to accomplish this. And I think Paul makes it pretty clear how we're going to do this. The first is that, what we looked at last week, is that we're actually supposed to welcome in other people with differing views. And then this week, the second is that we walk in love. And love, based on verse 15, is leaving behind our own convictions so that we may be accepted by other believers. And Paul doesn't ask us to leave behind positions entirely. But he says that those convictions are between us and God. And an act of love is to surrender ourselves from the things that don't matter to the kingdom of God, which is difficult for us to discern. Especially when we're so convinced by our own convictions. We genuinely believe them. How do we discern if we're on topics that are of importance? Paul gives us a way to discern in verse 19. He says, Let's pursue what makes for peace and mutual uplifting. 
if in our convictions with others, we are seeing an increasing level of frustration or anger or, or essentially causing them to be grieved by what we're saying, regardless of how right it is, it's not being received. And we're not supposed to persuade them, but we're supposed to pursue peace. And often enough, peace isn't found when you win the argument. It's found when we surrender ourselves to, the, to, to them, to, to loving them in their eternity. On these matters, pray for them. Trust in the Holy Spirit, as Paul says, to guide them. But it's the Spirit, not us. And if we're pushing those things that we, that we know for certain, and if we're pursuing those things, we can know for certain we are walking in love. I know this is hard to receive. It goes against how we tend to live our lives. But God's mission, as Paul says, is not, one of, is, not, is not on those things. God's mission is to bring people back to him, which is only found in Christ. There are many different positions on many different theological matters. But regardless of their stance, one thing unites us, and that is Christ. Paul says in verse 20, Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. In other words, do not hold onto cultural positions or non-essential kingdom matters that will divide people. That God has been uniting, you know, and divide people. That God has been trying to unite back together in Christ. Which brings us wonderfully to Lent and communion. A great reminder to us that we are, are not united on all matters but the only thing we are united in is Christ and his sacrifice for us. That no matter where we stand on positions of cultural difference, Christ's body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us. There was no doubt we will encounter people who just don't see things the way we do, even though we may be convinced it's right. But Paul's message can be summarized up like this. Christ's spirit is working in the lives of all believers. So our role is to follow the commandment to love God and love others. To surrender matters of not, impo not importance to, the, to matters that are important to the kingdom of God. And celebrate that which is what unites us. Christ's death and resurrection. And so I invite us to the table of communion as we gather together online and then in person, we can be certain, especially in times like this, that there are divisions, upon, uh, uh, and, uh, divisions of opinions among us and division of Christ's people because of it. But as we take communion together, may this remind us that the one thing that unites us all, and that's in matters of importance to the kingdom of God, is that we are united by Christ's sacrifice. In a few moments, we'll receive and partake together. And let me give us something to consider as we do. Are there areas of my life I've allowed to become matters of importance? Matters which have divided and not united. And am I willing to let that go for my love of other believers? And may we never be a stumbling block for others. Before we come to communion, let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son's body and blood broken and shed for us. That which has united us all back to you. May our hearts reflect that of the people united by Christ and act in love for our fellow believers. Show us what's essential and give us your spirit that we may pursue righteousness, peace, and joy among one another. We pray all these things to you in your name. Amen. On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and having given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do so in remembrance of me. partake together. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is my blood the new, of the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, remember, remember me. So with that, let's partake together. Heavenly Father, may we be people united by your bread and cup. May you lead us in these things. Amen. Well, we're glad you could join us this weekend to be reminded of Christ's unifying work on the cross to unite us all together as believers. And whatever this week may hold for you, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. In the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.